Hey everyone, this is That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. Before I get started with my guest for this week, I, I want to take a couple of minutes to uh, talk about uh, what's gone on over the last couple of weeks. Many of you at this point probably uh, know that my son Mitchell was in a, a pretty bad bicycle accident in Wichita uh, where he was struck by a car, and uh, Saturday we got a call he was in the hospital, and uh, so his family rushed over there, and we were prepared for a very long and hard recovery, um, but largely thanks to, I think, so much support and prayers and thoughts from people in our community, he made a, a very fast recovery. He still has uh, some, some road to travel ahead of him, but he was released from the hospital much sooner than we expected, and he's doing remarkably well, and uh, I appreciate everyone's thoughts and, and concerns and their prayers on that. And I hope you'll keep him coming because he still has some, some work to do to get back to full health. But uh, it was a reminder to me about the power and the importance of community. And in that, I want to make sure, and uh, there's a lot of people to thank, but on the podcast, Jackson Swear filled in for me for a couple of weeks, and that took a lot of pressure off of me. I really try to do everything I can to keep producing this on a weekly basis. And I think that's important to keep that consistency. And, and faced with a family emergency like that, I had to reach out and I had to rely on someone to help me. And Jackson filled in and did a couple of great interviews uh, while I was taking care of my family business. And I, I really want to thank him and appreciate that. And if you didn't get a chance to go back and listen to those, the, he had a great interview with uh, uh, a daycare provider talking about some of the issues there. And then with David Sotelo, who talked about... Um, his work on the Human Relations Council. So again, if you didn't get a chance to listen to those, go back and, and find those. But uh, again, I want to thank everyone for their, for their help and their support and everything they did over the last couple of weeks to, to help our family and to help Mitch. Uh, I won't forget it, and, and I want to thank you again. So now I'm going to introduce my guest for this week. It's Chris Courtright, and he's a uh, not not out in front very often, but for years and years, he's worked uh, in a very important role, uh, kind of helping government work and decide uh, how much, uh, what the budget's going to look like and what kind of money we have to play with. So he's currently a member of the Kansas, uh, the Governor's Council on Tax Reform. And in 2020, he retired after 34 years as the Kansas legislature's principal economist and he also served as a member of the prestigious Consensus Revenue Estimating Group. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in this podcast. He's also been the author of Kansas Tax Facts, which is a document that comes out every year. And I've found it to be incredibly useful uh, to kind of understand what's going on. He's uh, been a keynote speaker at the Kansas Economic Policy Conference, which I've been to. And it's a great event that really kind of dives into economic policy if you, if you like that sort of thing. And he's also presented at the Federal Reserve Region, Regional Economic Roundtable and the Journal of Policy History Conference. So that's a lot to say that Chris Courtright is an economist. He's served in some pretty big roles. Um, in, in, in he's worked with me uh, this year to kind of help me uh, wrap my mind around some tax policy and fiscal matters that are uh, probably not uh, things that I would understand very well without his help. So, Chris, thanks for coming on today and being on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Jason. Well, I, the first thing I, I wanted to ask you about is um, how does a person early in their life decide that they want to be an economist? 
Uh, I'm happy to to go over how all that happened in my case. Before I do, just I, I wanted to say how um, happy we are to hear that your your son is is doing well. And you mentioned the power and importance of of community. I, I might add that uh, thank goodness for the power and importance of access to qu- high quality healthcare in, in a situation like that. Uh, something I think underlines that. Um, my journey to an economist was kind of an, to becoming an economist was an interesting one. Um, I was in high school in the late 1970s, and this was post Watergate, the era of Woodward and Bernstein, right? Mm-hmm. So when I graduated from high school, I went off to the University of Kansas to uh, go to journalism school. And the William Allen White School of Journalism, of course, is one of the best, best schools in the country. I was going to be the next Woodward and Bernstein, don't you know, yeah. right? And in fact, I, I got one of my undergraduate degrees from the William Allen White School of Journalism. Um, I found out, though, that uh, in that era, um, as now, uh, that's not a field that pays all that well. <laughs> uh, and so at the time I graduated with undergraduate degrees in journalism, economics and history, uh, it was the opportunity to go to work for uh, very little money or consider graduate school. And at that point, I decided to go back to graduate school in in economics. Um, I started taking economics as just a core course while I was working on my journalism degree. And I got so I liked it. I ended up picking up my undergraduate degree there and then ended up going on to to, to graduate school, also at KU, uh, into the master's program for my graduate uh, training. Uh, and so that's a long way of saying I didn't think I'd get there if you talked to me when I was 18 years old. But um, I guess it's a, it's a left brain, right brain thing, right? Uh, uh, you you got to be able to have some kind of quantitative skills. And um, so after I, uh, as I was graduating from um, leaving grad school, I heard that the state might be hiring, the legislature in particular. Uh, and when I started working uh, here in the state house in the mid-1980s, there was really only one other uh, economist in, uh, sort of on staff, uh, and they were they were looking to hire. And so I uh, came on board here, and then I worked here for the next next 34 years. Um, and then pretty much 15 minutes after I retired here a couple of years ago, the governor appointed me to her council on tax reform because I'd known her for many, many years from her time as a legislator. And um, just have always been involved in tax policy, right? One of the main things I did was staff, uh, all the legislative tax committees and, um, and councils. I, w- I want to go back to this uh, Woodward and Bernstein thing, because in that time period, uh, everybody wanted to be a journalist, right? That was dynamic. Absolutely. That, you know, they had, they had undone a president. They had, uh, you know, the, the Operation Deep Throat and all that. And they had found this information about the, the president and uh, some of the, the shady things that had been going on. And it really created uh, for a lot of people in in your that were coming of age at that time. Journalism was a very appealing field, uh, but uh, I know very well how about the pay issues in journalism. We never could pay our people enough. Uh, I never felt like I was paid enough. But it, if it's a career that you want that's rewarding and fulfilling and exciting, it's the right one. But if you're trying to uh, run a family on it, not not all that great. Um, but so when you when you got to the state uh, and you started working as an economist, what 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 sort of thing you said you'd staff tax the tax committees. So kind of walk us through a little bit what that entailed, like what sort of things did you bring to the committee and, and what sort of information do you have to prepare as an economist for the for the legislature to help them 
have informed, have good information to make well-informed decisions? Yeah. Um, the one of the things that people often want to know about, and there's generally there's two staff agencies involved in the day-to-day -day operations of a of a committee. There is the reviser of statutes office. They're the official attorneys and legal eagles who write the, the bills and amendments that um, you guys will, will pass into law. And then there's the research department, which is my former agency, and we sort of do everything else, including quantify that legislation, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and uh, need knowledge of all the different areas of tax law. And of course, in, in, in Kansas, one of the things I quickly learned is that we have always preferred the diversified approach in terms of the state and local revenue portfolio, right? We, when we talk about three legs to the stool, we're talking about sales tax, income tax, and property tax. Mm -hmm. there, there, there's, there's some states that don't, don't have that diversification. Texas, of course, doesn't have an income tax, right? And sometimes that gets thrown in our face. But on the other hand, um, a lot of the tax councils and people and the governor's council on tax reform just looked at this too. Um, because their revenue portfolio is not as balanced and diversified, um, they have a much more volatile um, potential negative set of outcomes. Uh, one example of that, and this happened right around the time I started working here in the mid-1980s, there was a very bad regional recession back in 1986, 1987. If you look up nationally, you won't see any reference of a recession because there wasn't quite an official national recession. But here in Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, kind of in the ag and uh, energy um, belt here, there was a very bad uh, regional recession. And uh, the price per barrel of oil went to $9 a barrel and the price per MCF of gas went to 50 cents. Okay, really, really bad stuff. And there was terrible times in the public sector here in Kansas, right, a year or so after I started working here. And there were huge cuts to budgets. John Carlin was governor, and the 1986 legislature had already passed a, a budget for the upcoming fiscal year. But by the time the legislature got back to town in January of 1987, that budget was already underwater. So they had to go in and enact rescissions, cuts in money that had already been in approved and in some cases spent for the balance of fiscal 87. Uh, very, very tough times and uh, all the way around. Um, as bad as all of that was in Kansas, it was much, much worse in Texas. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, uh, often these states that have low income taxes, well, or in Texas case, no income taxes, that's thrown in our face. Well, that's for economic development, you know, some businesses want to locate in Texas and this kind of thing where there's no income tax. Uh, but when, um, because Texas revenue portfolio is not as balanced and diversified, they get all of their money from severance taxes and sales taxes, right? Taxes on oil and gas mm -hmm. and sales taxes. But when oil went to $9 a barrel and gas mm -hmm. went to 50 cents per MCF. Not much tax. Uh, yeah. Oil rig workers out in West Texas are laid off. No one has any money to spend. Next thing you know, gleaming office buildings in Houston and Dallas are kicking uh, tenants out. Guys in $900 suits are without a job. And the whole economy uh, just collapsed. Mm -hmm. And the money stopped coming into the public sector. And they had it way, way worse than we had in Kansas. Again, they had their eggs in fewer baskets or pick whatever analogy you like. So 
that's one reason uh, policymakers have preferred sort of the, the balanced approach in Kansas. The idea of a three-legged stool is a three-legged stool is sturdier than a one- or two-legged stool if there's a windstorm. You know, picture a stool sitting out on your porch in windy western Kansas, right? You're going to be able to weather that windstorm better if you've got your more diversification. The other component to this, and this is, we talked a lot about this in the recently released report of the Governor's Tax Council. The other thing policymakers since the 80s have thought about the ballast approach is it provides different kinds of equity, right? Um, there's the notion of, right, those doggone college students, okay, they're not paying as much income tax, but at least we sort of get them with the sales tax and the property tax on their 15-year-old cars, mm -hmm. right? Or if you're a manufacturing business, we're going to maybe give you every sales tax exemption known to man, and maybe even you get a property tax break from your um, city uh, or, or county commission, but at least if you're profitable, we're going to kind of get you with an income tax, mm -hmm. right? So no matter who or what you were, you probably have some skin in the game if the revenue net is, is cast more broadly, right? Uh, equity issues. Uh, another kind of equity issue is the notion um, that is talked about a lot more at the state house, and that is the kind of progressivity, regressivity thing. Mm -hmm. The sales tax, of course, is considered the most regressive of the three major tax sources, hardest on those who can least afford to pay, mm -hmm. right? And this ties into the food issue, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and it's been the hot topic here th this session. Sure. Um, sales tax is the most regressive. Income tax is by far the most progressive. Mm -hmm. Uh, of, of the three. And we have a three bracket system. The more brackets you have, the more progressive. Kansas, when I started working here, had a seven or eight bracket system. And we're now now down to three. Uh, for a while, under uh, the failed Brownback tax experiment, we had a two bracket system. Uh, then uh, that was repealed in 2017. We moved back to a three bracket system. And then property tax is somewhere in the middle. Sometimes people who are upset about the property tax will call it regressive. I don't, I don't think it is. I think, if anything, it's modestly progressive. I think the more income you have, the more property you tend to own. But, um, and, but, but it's somewhere in the middle. So the, there's different kinds of equity. The overall state and local tax system, based on analysis, is believed to be regressive. Even though there's an income tax in there, okay, when you take the sales tax and the liquor and the cigarette taxes and all these other taxes that are mostly regressive, the overall combined state and local tax system is harder on, on the folks who can least afford to pay that, um, than it is those who, who are, are more blessed with, with income and wealth. Now, it's even worse than that in states that don't have an income tax, like Texas and Florida and some of these other states. Um, but, but nevertheless, it, it's a fair point that the tax system is harder on those folks who uh, um, can least afford to pay. Well, and, and we are going to talk a little bit about uh, the food tax later because I, I have a couple of questions I want to ask about that. But the, the point that you made about uh, regressive tax policy and particularly sales tax, uh, the idea on that is that um, working families and poor families tend to have to spend more of their income on necessities, right? Like the, the percentage of food cost, what food costs for everybody, um, but for a, a family that is living off of $30,000 a year, they are spending a higher percentage of their income on necessities like food and hygiene products. Um, 
than uh, than a family that's making two hundred thousand dollars a year. They they may be spending a more dollar amount on food, but as a percent of their overall income, it's far less. Is am I understanding that? Correctly? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So in your work, you're you're looking at all these things. You're looking at and and we've had and we, we won't get into all of those, but we, we've had some interesting conversations about just different tax streams and uh, different tax exemptions. There's a lot of tax exemptions that have been created over the years. But one of the things I, I wanted to explain, because the, the timing of this, this will publish the day after, this will publish next week on Thursday, and I believe on Wednesday is the next uh, uh, publication of the Consensus Revenue Estimating Group. And uh, this kind of is what we build our budget around. And I, you were on that and, and you helped create this, uh, this measurement for years. So I kind of help us understand it. It plays a big role in state government, plays a big role in how we budget and how we set tax policy. But I, I suspect that few people have much understanding of what goes into that. So tell me a little bit about what you, what you guys do when the Consensus Revenue Estimating Group meets and talks about what the expectation is for revenue in the coming year. Absolutely. Um, I, I guess it's one of the things that's talked about a lot and there's monthly reports and all the rest of it, but very few people understand the history and the background of the process. I guess um, it's called the consensus revenue estimating process. And if you look up the word uh, consensus in the dictionary, it'll say something like, you know, unanimity of opinion. Well, why do we, why do we call this thing the consensus group? And I guess the reason we call it that is to make clear that we're doing it differently than what happens at the federal level, okay? I don't know how anyone in Washington, D.C. can realistically make public policy. It is such a complicated universe to operate in. Often you'll have the White House with one set of numbers and budget assumptions and the Congressional Budget Office with another and the House Republicans with another and the Senate Democrats with another and some partisan special interest group with a, with a, with a fifth set, right? Now, at least if you're a member of Congress uh, with 10 or 20 different interns and gophers on your staff, they can help you sort through all these different sets of uh, assumptions about how to, you know, how to make your decisions. But the idea in a small state like Kansas with a part-time citizen legislature is, is, look, we don't have that kind of sophistication. And it's silly to do it that way anyway. So let's get everyone on the same page. Let's all agree going in that one cent of sales tax is worth X and five cents of cigarette tax is worth Y. And then as policymakers, Everyone can choose up sides and start fighting about whether they want to raise or lower the sales or the cigarette tax. But for crying out loud, let's not have everybody sort of cooking the numbers going into that debate. Okay. Yeah. So, but based on this, we're all working with the same baseline yes. figures. And the governor is governor is required by law to base his or her budget on what the consensus group does. Okay. Okay. So everyone's got got to use that. And what what the consensus group does is it convenes twice a year, in you know, once in November and once in April, to estimate receipts for the current fiscal year and the, the next fiscal year. So right now we're a um, couple plus months from the end of fiscal 22. Fiscal 22 ends on June 30th, and July 1st is the first day of fiscal 23. Mm -hmm. um, so when the consensus group met last November, uh, it was three or four months into fiscal 22. And they had those receipts there and they said, okay, 
we, we now are going to guess for all the major tax sources, income taxes and sales taxes and liquor and severance and cigarette and all these other taxes that come into the state general fund, how much in receipts are going to come in for the next eight months of uh, fiscal 22 and then fiscal 23, which starts on July 1st of calendar 22, we're going to take a guess uh, for those receipts in that year as well, because that fiscal 23 is the year that the legisl- 2022 legislature builds the budget for, right? Mm-hmm. And you guys, before you leave town, will set the budget for the fiscal year that's going to kick in July 1st um, and, and hope nothing happens like did back in 1987, where it goes underwater while you're not in town, right? Yeah. Um, so that's a little bit uh, of the background, but, but how how do they, do they use a dartboard or a Ouija board? How do they guess what's going to happen for the next 12 to 18 months all the time. Well, a week, but the, the main meeting, as you said, is next Wednesday, uh, April 20th. Mm-hmm. And uh, about a week before the main meeting, it happened here a couple days ago, they, they, the whole consensus group gathers. The press doesn't even really know about this, but the, there's what's called an economic outlook meeting. Mm-hmm. And uh, the members of the consensus group convene, and they all agree that, uh, okay, Inflation for the next 12 to 18 months is this. Kansas personal income is that. The unemployment rate is going to be this. Here's what's happening in the key sectors of the Kansas economy. Uh, Oil and gas, aviation manufacturing, agriculture. Uh, Here's what's going on in uh, sort of the the Johnson County corridor. All these critical things and, and many, many hours and ancillary meetings happen. We meet with oil and gas industry sources to talk about severance taxes. You know, who really knows about the price per barrel of oil? It can be very volatile based on what OPEC is doing or whether Putin invades Ukraine or all these other things, Mm -hmm. right? But you got to take your best stab at it by looking at futures markets and all these other things. So everyone of the, there's six voting members of the consensus group, but everyone agrees a week before the main meeting on these, okay, I'm going to make my sales and my income and my liquor tax estimates based on inflation being this and personal income being that, and everyone agrees on the economic outlook. Okay. And then the consensus group scatters and goes their six separate ways and independently of one another with no collaboration, prepares uh, individual estimates for each state general fund tax source that's on that table of receipts you're familiar looking at. Sales taxes, income taxes, liquor taxes, cigarette taxes, corporation income taxes. There's a number of tax sources that come into the state general fund. And what happens at the main meeting next Wednesday, I guess it's a little bit like selection of a pope if you're Catholic or a brokered political convention back in the day. Mm -hmm. It's not public. The consensus group actually has an exemption from the Open Meetings Act. And what goes on behind closed doors isn't discussed, right? When when, uh, there's a new pope, there's a certain color of smoke that comes out of the Sistine Chapel, right? And when the political bosses would emerge from a political party convention back in the day, you know, the, the infighting would go on behind closed doors, but they would come out with a unified front and saying, this guy is our presidential nominee, right? He may be an SOB, but he's our SOB. And so we're all on the same page from now on. Yeah. That's a little bit the way the consensus process works. Again, there's a consensus. These are the numbers. We, we don't, we throw away the individual six different source estimates, right? If you went out and had a beer with me after the meeting, 
I might tell you that I think the sales tax estimate is $5 million too high, and the Department of Revenue might tell you they think it's $10 million too, too low. But you couldn't buy enough beer to get me drunk enough to violate that confidence. Mm-hmm. Okay, we all agree, no, 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 the joint number is, is this. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the six different voting members of the group who, who do all of this are um, my former agency, the research department, on behalf of, of the legislature. And then there's the Department of Revenue uh, and the Division of the Budget on behalf of the administration. Okay. And then we have a consulting economist from really sort of each of the state's three flagship universities. There's an expert from uh, from KU, one from K-State, and one from Wichita State. Okay. And they gather behind closed doors and, and uh, release these numbers. And then the, the evening of the meeting, usually around 5 or 5.30, uh, there will be a press conference. The division of the budget and the research department will hold a press conference saying, here's, here's the new numbers, and they've gone up or, or, or down relative to the November estimate. So uh, the estimate that's coming um, here next Wednesday will revise the fiscal 22 estimates. We will now be 10 and a half months into the fiscal year. So we have more information. Yeah, more to information. Make that inf- to and, make that- and the reason it's done in the spring, when I started working here, the law said that the spring consensus estimate had to be done on or before April 4th. Well, about 15 years or so ago, the legislature started taking the whole month of April off anyway. And so we said, look, it's silly. We have better information if we can push that date back. So we got you guys to pass a bill to push the date back to April. Now it says on or before April 20th. And they're, in fact, meeting on April 20th this year. And obviously the reason that date is so critical is income taxes. More tax returns have come. Yes, more and and state income taxes in particular are very bottom heavy in terms of a state's fiscal year, Mm -hmm. right? Some taxes will come in, you know, take the annual number, divide it by 12, and you get about that much in every month. Income taxes are not that way, right? There's a whole lot more money uh, March, April, May, June in the final, you know, sort of three, four months of the fiscal year, way more than a third or a fourth of the uh, individual income tax money comes crashing in as people go to file and reconcile their returns for the previous tax year, right? So uh, many, many years, if there's a big surprise, positive or negative, it's happened during April and May as you guys are kind of winding down your your session. So we push the date back to give us, uh, and that's one of the key things that happens behind closed doors is the Department of Revenue gives us the very latest data on returns, right? Uh, How many returns have been filed? How many more they think are still out there? What's the average refund this year versus last year? What was the average balance due remittance of people who owed money this year versus last year, right? They, they track all of this. So, so besides how much did the Kansas economy grow last year and how did layoffs in one industry affect things and some of these macroeconomic variables, the, the people who actually process the returns are, um, are at the table giving us this latest information. And so there's a lot of discussion about where the, the tax filing things are and um it got more problematic the last couple of years because of the pandemic. The feds, for a year or two, pushed back the filing deadlines, mm-hmm. right? And and that's finally washed itself out now. And this year, it's April 18th is the filing deadline for both uh, state and, and federal instead of the 15th because it's Emancipation Day or something in Washington, D.C. But, but, but yeah, it's back to being April 15th now. 
So the idea is they'll have the best possible information um, will be out there and there'll be a new baseline when when the legislature reconvenes on Monday, April 25th, I believe, is the first yep. day of the so-called veto session. But, but back in the day, the veto session was supposed to only be considered for overriding vetoes. The legislature, when I started working in this building in the 1980s, would actually do its job in the first three months of the session and pass a budget and pass changes in tax law and all other kinds of laws in the first three or four months of the session and just come back for a three or four day veto session. Yeah. Um, what started happening, especially by the 1990s, is virtually none of the major decisions are made in the first three months of the session. Almost all of the major things, especially as it relates to tax policy, often happen during the veto session mm -hmm. at this point. People think, wow, boy, there's going to be uh, money taken away or more money added in April. So realistically, we can't know that until the veto session. So human nature being to procrastinate, uh, a lot of times the major decisions are pushed off until late April, early May in the veto session. Mm -hmm. And several times when things were so gridlocked under um, the previous administration, when, when uh, Sam Brownback was governor, um, the veto session actually crashed clear into the month of June. Mm -hmm. I think three times since the 1860s, the legislature has been in town in the month of June, and two of those times were under um, Sam Brownback because things were so uh, tough. The decisions that the legislature writ large had to make because of the magnitude of the crisis, um, that it just took every, the policymakers and the legislative branch that much more time to be able to, to reach an agreement. Um, and, and finally, after some years of that in 2017, um, they, they passed something that the governor vetoed and then the legislature ended up overriding his veto. Mm -hmm. And so it, that, I think that might've been one of the years it went clear till the month of June as well. Yeah. So in that, um, there's been a lot of discussion this year. Well, let me back up. We, and what you're talking about certainly has been the case since I've been here that but we we tend to hold the big things off until after that break break in April. We come back in May, and we have these very long and intense days where we're trying to catch up with all the work and and deal with tax policy and deal with uh, changes to the budget based on that information. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the sales tax on food. That's been probably one of the dominant conversations in in the state this year. Uh, the governor, of course, came out with a plan to uh, eliminate the state portion of sales tax on food, which would be six and a half percent reduction across the board on food. Um, it, since then, there's been a lot of discussion about, uh, should we do it all at once? Some people favor phasing it in over a number of years. Uh, some people want to reduce the overall uh, income or the, the overall sales tax rate by a smaller amount, 0.2%. Um, if you're somebody like me who doesn't really spend any money on anything besides the necessities, that doesn't really save me a whole lot. Um, but there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of wrangling around about how that's going to work out. Um, but you provided me one time with an interesting history of the, the sales tax on food. And so the, my two questions here, and, and we can look at one of them and then talk about that a little bit and move on to the other. But my one question is about the history of the food sales tax. And the other is what it means or what it could mean for the economy. You were talking before about some of these factors that the, the consensus revenue group looks at 
And I'm, I'm really curious to hear what it might mean or what we anticipate it could mean in economic activity to see that kind of reduction in, in sales tax. So start with the history and tell me some of the history of the food sales tax. Okay. Um, Kansas, like a lot of states, put our sales tax on in the 1930s. Uh, the, the first state to enact something like that smells like a sales tax is, I think, West Virginia in the early 1920s. And by 1930, there were 12 states that had sales taxes. And by 1940, there were 30 states. So a lot of states put them on in the 1930s for obvious reasons, right? There was, was this in response to the Depression? Yes, absolutely. There was tremendous stresses on society and, and the public sector. And so uh, many, many states implemented a sales tax in the 1930s, Kansas among them. And in Kansas, we put ours on in 1937. And I uh, found some old files one time and, and, and dug back through them. Um, the issue of sales tax on food was present right away. Mm -hmm. Kansas, was uh, it, uh, when the legislature enacted the sales tax in 1937, they were cognizant that other states, uh, a number of other states who had put the sales tax on had exempted groceries, mm -hmm. what we call food, from the sales tax. Uh, but Kansas opted not to do it. It said, look, we'll, we'll get less money. So for now, we're going to go ahead and put the state sales tax on food. There were there were not local sales taxes in the 1930s, but it was just the state rate. And the state rate, when it was put on, was 2%. two so a 2% sales tax kicked in in 1937. Um, the, the idea of exempting food, the reason it was around so much is, is what you just said. It, it's a necessity, right? And states have been cognizant ever since they started putting sales taxes on of the regressivity issue and on necessities. Virtually all 45 states that have a sales tax have exemption for prescription drugs, mm -hmm. right? And we have that in Kansas. Uh, Kansas and I'm guessing 40 to 45 of the 45 states with sales taxes have an exemption for residential utilities, right? Everybody has to pay their gas bill and their electric bill. So we're not going to put the state sales tax on, on that. Uh, there's exemptions for prosthetic devices, as you might imagine, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, prescription drugs. So a lot of these things in some states will exempt diapers and baby formula, right? But, but, but food has always been the, the big issue. And in Kansas, we've been talking about whether to exempt food or not literally since 1937. Yeah. As soon as the tax went on, there was an immediate conversation about should we be taxing food? Yeah, absolutely. And then in 1978, the, the legislature kept studying this and studying this all through the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then in the 70s, um, Kansas said, well, look, it's we don't know if we can afford to exempt food, but we like what Indiana did. Indiana did something in the early 1960s. They put a credit on that targeted tax relief to certain people. And Kansas came along with a credit called the Food Sales Tax Rebate Program in 1978. And what the, the idea behind that was uh, to sort of buy off the revolution, if you will. Um, we, we may not be able to afford to wipe out 15% of the sales tax base. but and that's, and that's how much of overall sales tax revenue we estimate is for food. Yes, right? about 15% okay. of the overall sales tax base goes to groceries. And by the way, when we say food, we mean groceries. Yeah. If, if Not restaurants. Even, even yeah, right. Even states that have uh, the... Food exemption. If you eat at McDonald's, it's you know it's going to be taxable, yeah. right? But we're talking about you go to the grocery store to buy a head of lettuce. That's that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, and 
Kansas put on this uh, food sales tax credit, and it was uh, you had to meet both an income and demographic test. Someone in the household had to be above age 55 or blind or otherwise disabled or a dependent child below age 18. And if some, at least one person in the household met one of those demographic tests and the total household income was below a certain level, we're going to give you back. We're going to give you back as a state income tax reduction or even refundable, send you a check to acknowledge that over the previous calendar year, you paid sales taxes on your food and we don't think you should have. Right. So it was targeted at the elderly, the disabled people with um, kids. kids. Yeah. Yeah. If your income was below a certain level, you get this back. And we, so we went along and there were still efforts saying, nah, this isn't enough. Everybody would benefit if we didn't have to pay sales tax on food like these other states. So the issue kept going in the eighties and nineties and two thousands. Uh, but the legislature responded and it, it enhanced the credit several times. I think in 2002, maybe, or uh, the sales tax was raised after the 9-11 recession, right? Uh, this is the one where the bad guys flew our airplanes into our buildings, not the Great Recession that yeah. came along a few years later. But um, there was a tough times in the, in the public sector and the legislature had to respond with a tax package. And so... When the sales tax rate would go up, like it did in 1986 and in 2002, policymakers would acknowledge this is going to be even harder on people paying sales tax on their groceries. So let's sweeten the the, the credit to those who, who need it the most. And so that's the kind of the way we went down the aisle until um, 2012. And what happened in 2012 is we had the the great tax experiment. The former governor said, "Well, look." Um, the Great Recession seems to be taking longer to recover than um, uh, previous recessions. And I think it's going to be this economic development competition between and among the states. We need to do something sexy here and get noticed in terms of our tax policy. And, um, and the people, which is the governor saying this, other people who, who said, look, we, we need to try something different. And so they wanted to uh, have a radical reduction in income taxes. And, uh, but, but they acknowledged that was going to cost a great many hundreds of millions of dollars, and it did. So they put what he called pay-fors in his bill, in his pr- original proposal. Uh, there was a re- relaxation of some severance tax exemptions that, that was in there, for example. Um, there were t- other changes throughout the tax code, but, but one of the things to pay for the income tax cuts was a drastic reduction in the food sales tax rebate program. It was made non-refundable. So if you didn't owe any state tax, you didn't didn't benefit. Yeah. They could only come off of a tax liability. Exactly. Real quickly, let me give you tax credit 101. If I have $100 of income tax liability and I'm entitled to a $300 credit, if that credit is quote unquote refundable, which the food sales tax credit used to be, my $100 of liability is wiped out and the state then sends me a check for the other $200. But if that credit is made non-refundable and I have $100 of liability and I'm entitled to a $300 credit, I, my $100 of liability is wiped out and I just walk away. Yeah. I, I get no additional benefit. So taking away the... Um, refundability of the food sales tax 
program, which again, we'd had since the 70s. It kind of, as I said, helped to buy off the revolution and make us not look so bad in terms of, of taxing groceries. That, um, when that, that occurred, it uh, really brought the issue more in, in, into focus. It, it, it certainly helped pay for, for some of the income tax cuts, but it made the issue that much uh, harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and now flash forward to the last couple of years, coming out of the pandemic, we're in a situation where um, a couple, three things have happened. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court has enabled states to get more money on purchases made from out-of-state uh, retailers, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of people are moving to online sales. Exactly. Right? And so this was a big issue for the states. And states are now able to collect when people order things from uh, online vendors. Uh, but but also the federal government came in and gave the states a lot of money, right? One of the perceived problems with the Great Recession was the ARRA legislation from 2009 wasn't big enough, mm-hmm. right? It, one reason recovery from the Great Recession is thought to have taken so long is the federal relief package wasn't big enough, right? Mm-hmm. We're going old school Keynesian here, macroeconomic impact. So um, when um, the federal government, uh, a couple of the bills were passed under Trump and a couple under Biden, but but they had three or four pieces of legislation that pumped all this money you know, out there as people were locked down in their homes and ordering toilet paper online and all the other fun things we everyone did there for a couple of years. Um, they were cognizant that states were going to have problems with their budgets and, and all of this. So the federal government came along and gave the states a, a, a good bit of money. And um, the other thing that happened in Kansas that helped us get to this strong fiscal point we're at right now, and there's, I will tell you, there's more money in the state general fund coffers now in Kansas than there ever has been really in, in, in history, even in, in percentage terms. Um, and part of that is because of a state law change that happened in 2017. Um, what had happened is we had very severe budget problems in the state from 2012 through 2017 because of the tax experiment it didn't turn out like some of its proponents had originally hoped. And um, Kansas had to uh, return to a three-bracket system and repeal the non-wage exemption for non-wage business income and these other kinds of things. And the legislature passed a bill, as I explained earlier in 2017, that the former governor vetoed. And then Republicans and Democrats alike were frustrated after five years of this tough time that they, they overrode his veto in 2017. 84 and 27 votes were needed, and those votes were rounded up. And the law was changed back to move back to a three-bracket system, which is what we had till um, 2012. We had a three-bracket system from the 1992 through 2012. Um, and because we went back to a three-bracket system and we took away this exemption for non-wage business income, which, by the way, was one of the more controversial parts of the 2012 bill, it, it's, it was one of these things where it wasn't just limited liability corporations and subchapter S's and sole proprietorships who got the exemption. It was royalty income, farm income, consulting income, any other kind of income other than wage income on God's green earth that you or your accountant could construe as non-wage mm-hmm. business income paid zero income taxes on that. Okay. So th- this is this is one reason the, the state got broke. It just exempted way too much of this stuff. And that, that exemption um, was was restored. And that kind of income had to start paying state taxes again in 
um, in, in 2017. Um, so between between that repeal and restoring that, um, getting taxes from non-wage income or business income, right. and the in, between that and the infusion of federal, federal money, dollars, yes, the, the, we, the revenue seen, elasticity of the income tax and the all oil state tax system, and then this new use tax money that's coming in from online purchases for two or three or four reasons, we, we are at a historic point here. We have a chance to do something I never thought there would be a, a chance to do, having talked with policymakers for some four decades about sales tax on food. Everyone always assumed the most we could ever do was to add a layer or two to the, to the credit before we wiped out most of the credit in 2012. But, but, but the governor acknowledged and realized last fall, I think it was late October, early November, she said, look, uh, there's even more money coming here with the new revenue estimates that are about to be released in November. We can really afford to do this. Kansas have been talking about this since 1937. Let's take the sales tax off of food. We can afford to do the whole thing right away. Take all 6.5% state sales tax off of food on July 1st. And then she said in her state of the state speech, yes, do this. It's built into my budget. Hey, let's get this on my desk by Kansas Day, which, of course, is January 29th. Um, and there seemed to be bipartisan agreement in both parties about that. Uh, her presumptive gubernatorial opponent uh, has made uh, approving noises about wanting to get the sales tax off of food. And, and Republicans and Democrats alike, I think, in the legislature have said, sure, sure, sure. And everyone seemed to think it was going to happen. Um, but you and I are sitting here in the middle of April. Uh, with and, no bill. With no bill, yeah. yes. And that's, uh, that's one of the interesting things that you would know more about, certainly than I would, the blocking and tackling of, of what goes on behind uh, closed doors in, in the legislature. But uh, it is, I will say it's a bit mystifying. Kansas has, uh, other than Mississippi, who is not always good company to be in, Kansas has, is the second highest uh, rate on food in the country. There's only a few other states that tax food. Most states have a full or partial exemption for food. And uh, the governor proposed to, uh, let's, let's do this. We, we can, it will save the average, to the second part of your question, it will save the average Kansas family $500 or more a year. Uh, that money, I think, would further help, you know, going into people's pockets, it's going to further help uh, stimulate the, the Kansas economy and, and, and be spent locally and this kind of thing. So sometimes these tax breaks that are offered for, for businesses and this kind of thing, you're never really sure who the beneficiaries are. Uh, but, but the sales tax on food purchased in the state is something that's going to help for any number of reasons, not the least of which is the allegation for years is as what there's uh, a third or more of the Kansas population who lives within an hour of a state line. And mm -hmm. there's people that drive to Missouri or Oklahoma or some of these other states to buy their groceries and, and these kinds of things. Well, there's going to be less incentive for them to do that and spend their money here. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, if they're over in Missouri buying groceries, they might buy gasoline and liquor over there as well. Yep. So Kansas is going to be bringing a lot of money home if we can keep people home here to, to, to certainly buy their, their groceries. That's, that's part of it. Another part of it, of course, is that we're looking at prehistoric inflation here the last month or two because of the war in Ukraine and all the rest of this. Inflation is now as high as it's been since the early 1980s. Yeah. Uh, and people are noticing when they go to the grocery store 
how much more that hurts. Mm-hmm. Th- this is even more badly needed now than I think uh, some might argue than when the governor proposed it last fall. And, and getting it into effect by July 1, I think, I'm, I'm guessing for a lot, you and your legislative friends would remain a high legislative priority here as, as we head down the stretch in, into what's called the, the, the veto session here that starts in a week or so. Well, one of the things about this that, that, that has been a little interesting, I guess, is that um, you talk to people individually in this building, everyone agrees that this needs to happen. I mean, on an individual basis, um, everybody wants it to happen. There's nobody that says, I don't think we should cut the food sales tax. There's discussion about how to do it, how long it should take, why we shouldn't uh, be measured in it. People are worried about what does it mean in the budget three years from now, be- because it is expensive. It's gonna. It's estimated to cost about four hundred fifty million dollars in this first in the first year. Yes, um, and that's expensive, and that's always been the reason before that we hesitated. I think that's a big cut uh, to the budget. Um, but as you pointed out, we're sitting on upwards of three billion dollars over budget in revenue, and, and as you said, it's historic. And it seems that if you have that, to, to me you have this historic moment, this historic revenue collection, it's probably a good time to look at getting rid of a tax that, in my view, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, I tell people at home, there's nothing that's a more broad-based tax relief than sales tax on food. If you're looking for broad tax relief that can affect and touch most families, every family in the state, it's going to be sales tax because on food because all of us do that. All of us buy it. And, and you had made the point about the inflationary pressures, which I, I think is right. We've, I think we saw about 8% inflation on food. Um, we immediately knocked that down to take 6.5% of that out by removing the, the sales tax. Still inflation, but we can kind of mitigate that by offering that savings. Um, it, what other ways? So I'm curious from an economist's point of view, uh, you talk about money will stay in the state because people have less incentive to shop out of the state. How do we how do how do we think families spend that money when they're not spending it on tax on essential items like groceries? How does that money then recirculate into the economy when it's not collected as tax revenue? Well, again, that's that's the interesting economic question. But if people have an extra five hundred dollars a year in their pocket that they would have otherwise spent on sales tax on groceries, they might they might use that money to put into their kids college accounts. They might use that money to uh, uh, pay down back credit card debt. Um, th- th- they're going to use the money, and in most cases, it's, it's certainly going to stay in the state. These are Kansans who live here, eat here, work here, uh, people who, who buy food in Kansas grocery stores. Uh, the, the assumption as an economist is the lion's share of that money is going to stay in the state, and then through the multiplier effect, you know, if it's spent on other taxable goods and services, right, um, it, it's it's going to continue to stimulate the economy. That's the distinction between sales tax on food. I think it's an important one. And some of the other tax cuts that were uh, have been out there before that are not as broad-based and certainly not as well-targeted. I remember during the um, uh, previous administration when we were talking about the, the great tax experiment, there was a, a legislator, a former legislator from Johnson County who was a lobbyist. And I won't, won't name who he was, but... He was telling me, uh, and he, he was a Republican, and he was a legislator for a number of years. He told me 
uh, at the time we passed that, everybody was talking about this non-wage exemption I mentioned earlier. He said, hey, Chris, it's, it's great that y'all are talking about uh, this exemption for non-wage business income. He said, uh, I'm uh, a silent partner in an LLC that owns a strip mall over here in Johnson County. And he said, I think it's great that, you know, but, but I, I, he said, I, I'll tell you, it's just not very well targeted. Because as a legislator, he used to talk with me about targeting and some of the issues mm-hmm. you and I are talking about. And he said, if, if you guys wipe out state income taxes on that particular revenue stream for me, I'm not going to create any new jobs or hire anybody. He said, I'm more likely to put my wife on an airplane and go to Las Vegas with that. Mm-hmm. There's no mandate that I spend that money here in the state. And I thought, well, that's that's an interesting point, right? And but, but so it, it, it was a different thing than, than sales tax on food, certainly, right? All Kansans would benefit, I think, from having this extra $500 in their pocket. And the sooner it takes effect, the better, because of not just the inflationary uh, pressures we talked about, but uh, again, it's this notion we can afford it. And um, w- one of the ideas that was floating around before the legislature broke was to phase in the full six and a half percent cut on food over two and a half, three years. To, I think to not start it until January 1st for some reason, and then also to phase it in under some formula for two or three years. And I, I guess. That also was a little bit puzzling to me because, as, as we, we just said, there's historically high ending balances, depending on your assumptions about expenditures, some two and a half to three billion dollars or more. And there might even be more money than that in the pipeline here next week if the consensus group raises estimates. And it is anticipated they will and for a reason I'll explain here in a minute. Um, but some of the same people who are saying, oh, no, no, we, we really need to be careful that even though we got three billion dollars in the bank, this 450 million could, you know, Im- imperil the state's coffers. Some of those same people were the ones cheering on a decade ago the the great tax experiment, which in, in fact left the state in the red ink for, for many, many years in a row when the state was having to do fund sweeps and find money in couch cushions and not make payments to the state pension program and get our the state's bond rating uh, reduced by Moody's and Standard and Poor's, and everything else that happened a decade ago. Uh, some of the same folks who were saying, oh, don't worry, this is not a big deal, are now all of a sudden worried that the state uh, projected ending balance in fiscal 25 or 6 might be a problem. It, 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 it's a little surprising to me. But back to the consensus thing, one reason I think it's anticipated money is going to be added um, here when the full consensus group reconvenes next next Wednesday is uh, because as if there were not enough imprecision in the revenue estimating process, uh, you know, trying to guess how much sales and income taxes come in, when we're done with it, we would always take and disaggregate it into 12 separate monthly sub-estimates for purposes of the monthly tracking reports, mm-hmm. right? So you, you think over the course of a year, so much sales or income tax money is going to come in, and then you you split it, how much is going to come into each month based on a different set of assumptions that we make. Well, that uh, the consensus group in November, again, revised the fiscal 22 estimates several months in. Um, in the five months since the estimates were redone in November, we're more than $300 million ahead of the, the November estimates. So right. all indications are all indications are fiscal outpacing. 22 estimates are going up and then coming off a higher base fiscal 23 will go up too. So 
if the CRE group, in fact, when they reconvene next Wednesday, raises both fiscal 22 and fiscal 23 net bottom line estimates, some taxes will go up and some will go down. But, but the big ones, sales tax, use tax, individual income tax, and corporation income taxes are all up and trending up. Um, that will have a snowball effect. And if you're worried about the fiscal 23 ending balance, in all likelihood, it's going to have a lot more money there than that which the governor based her budget on. Because again, she was required by law to base her budget on the November estimates. There's now going to be even more money on the table. So this $450 million, I know there's people that think, and I'm guessing you might be one of them who thinks this, that if there's money on the table for tax cuts, that should be the very first $450 million out the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, is to, to do, as the governor asked, the full and immediate, don't phase it in over two or three years, there's no need to wait till January 1st, get the full tax cut implemented on um, July 1st. And I know there's a, a legislation uh, in committee that would do that, but that's been not allowed to get out of committee. And there was a tax conference committee that wrote this plan that uh, was going to phase it in over two or three years, but they didn't even allow vote on that bill before they left town in April. So long story short, I'm not entirely sure what is going on, but again, it's the political vagaries of um, uh, what might be behind that or something you'd be more expert at than I am. I'm just an old uh, country economist. I, I had a friend tell me uh, not long after I got here that the, the issue is never the issue. And I always have to remember that. Sometimes you, you think that um, if you hear that the reason we can't do it is because there's not enough money or we're worried about out years, there's probably another issue driving that. Because uh, very I found that advice or that insight to be very true and very reliable. Um, before I let you go here, I, I would do this thing at the end that I that I always uh, like to do if I, if I can do it and remember it. I like to ask a couple of questions just to uh, open it up for you. It, it, if there's one or two things that you wish people knew or understood about economics, tax policy, uh, life working inside as a bureaucrat inside the legislature, uh, what would you wish they knew? Oh, um, I guess how challenging it is for all 165 members of the legislature, right? It's one thing I, I developed a great deal of appreciation working for. We were a nonpartisan staff agency. We worked for both political parties. And um, I, I got to know so many people over the years who were elected to the legislature. And the, you know, in the computer era, there's texts and emails and so many other ways to get a hold of your, but, 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 the idea of the Saturday morning eggs and issues coffees back in your district and, and getting citizen input, right? And, and some of it can be angry citizen input, right? Uh, uh, going door to door and, and how hard it is to, to get here and then try and figure out um, what the majority of your constituents really, in fact, want you to do. Mm-hmm. Because the, the biggest challenge that's occurred to me is in politics as in life, I think it's the squeaky wheels that get the grease, mm-hmm. right? And when you're in the Kansas legislature, you have a whole phalanx of lobbyists wanting to tell you that um, you need to do this or, or don't do that to my industry. And oh, by the way, we've got members back in your district, uh, Jason, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know, they're, they'll take you to lunch to tell you about it. Right. Uh, that, that's a part of the process. But or you'll have um, someone show up and berate you on a Saturday morning when you're back at your local coffee house about property taxes. Right. 
Uh, and because someone shows up and berates you, does that mean property taxes are totally out of control or one person thinks they are? Mm-hmm. So again, you got to sort through all this noise because you know the, the great many of your constituents are going to their kids' soccer games and all the rest of this. They don't have time to stay engaged as the lobbyists or some of the people who might be able to show up at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning and berate you about property taxes. So you're trying to do the right thing for your whole district. And uh, it, it's just, I wish people appreciated what a tough job you, you, you guys have when you're here uh, and the amount of pressure you're under. And um, unfortunately in Kansas, as I said, it's a part-time citizen legislature. You guys are not, certainly not paid enough. It's in you know California and some of these states, it's, it's a full-time job and they, they pay their legislature, uh, legislators enough so they can they can eat, you know, and focus on the in, job. In Kansas, so many legislators have to have other jobs and gigs, and it's just, it's it's tough. Uh, and um, so that that's an issue that uh, I wish people knew is how hard you guys have to work for how how little you're you're compensated. Well, I appreciate that. I I want to I want to uh, give a plug too to your old department and the revisor's office. I was asked, uh, I can't remember where I was at, but it was a group of people and, um, oh, I was speaking to a, a group of students at Hutch High and uh, they asked, how, how do we write bills? And I said, oh, if legislators wrote bills, it'd be a nightmare. I said, I, we have a whole team of revisors that they're very good legal minds and they understand the law and we have an idea and these poor people have to take our sometimes very bad and not well thought out ideas and turn those into pieces of legislation that conform with existing statute and conform with the Constitution. And they, they do that job very, very well. And I, I always I try to think about that as much as I can about I sometimes make the joke that if it wasn't for a research department and a revisor's office, uh, legislators would be dawdling around up here, not having any idea what they should be doing, because we might have ideas and thoughts and we might have contact with constituents. but we could never turn those things into actionable items if it wasn't for professional staff like your former department and the revisor's office to, to make those things into something we can use. Well, Chris, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and visit with me today. I, I, I'm a little bit of a nerd and I enjoy some of this economics discussion. I realize that not everybody does, but I do think it's important to understand how we frame the conversation around tax policy and and how we gather the information that kind of guides our budgeting. And hopefully uh, people listening have a little more knowledge about how this is done. It's not like you said, we're just throwing darts at a dartboard. We're actually putting some thought into trying to come up with the best estimates we can and make sure that we're not too far off the mark and then adjust when we need to. I appreciate your work in all those years. And I've appreciated your insight this year. It's been very valuable to me uh, to help me understand issues that are a little bit above my my expertise and a little bit above my pay grade. So thanks for coming on today and thanks for all the work you do. Thanks for having me. I'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son Mitchell Probst wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Burgett put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast and Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, 
reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Assault City Sound Production.